guys, it's the Bon Appetit Foodcast. I'm Adam Rappaport. And you know what? It's officially the holidays. That that magical month between Thanksgiving and Christmas. So, to get in the spirit, first up, we've got self-proclaimed not-writer, Tyler Cord, who happens to be uh, one of the best writers I know. Tyler owns Number 7 Sub in New York City. Uh, also wrote a super upsetting book about sandwiches. That's the name of the book. A super upsetting book about sandwiches. We sent Tyler up to Montreal, which is perhaps the best wintry eating city in all of North America. And we talked to him about his adventures in uh, foie gras and smoked beef and everything in between. And after that, senior food editor Claire Saffitz comes on to talk edible gifts that you make yourself. You know, you're getting all Martha Stewart and you've got your little ball jars and packages and tags and ribbons out. Uh, we got a recipe for a homemade caramel sauce that is spectacular. And kind of a, I guess you could say, kind of a healthy-ish pancake mix with like rye flour and buckwheat flour. All right, but first, here's Tyler and me. Tyler Cord, welcome back to the podcast. Hi, thanks. Since we since we last saw you here, you you not only had a baby, but you also went to Montreal. I did. I did. I did both of those things the same week. But yeah, in the <laughs> in the same week, it was intense. So yeah, that, that's got to be the first question. We. Uh, we wanted to assign a piece for our Christmas issue on like Montreal because it's such a beautiful wintry wonderland and it's right there across the border and it feels like you're in another country, which apparently you are. Yeah, and <laughs> so, turns out. Turns out. <laughs> so you agreed to do the article for us, but you didn't tell us it was the same week you, that you were reporting the piece was the same week that your wife was due. Well, you don't say no to a free trip to Montreal no matter when your child is due to be born, right? I guess well, I <laughs> no, I did, say, but I did say something to um, Andrew Knowlton about it, and I was like, th- "There is a chance I'm going to have to like get on a plane in the middle of this and kind of like rush back to New York for a baby." And he was like, "Ah, we'll figure it out. You can go back another time." <laughs> All right, Montreal. Uh, not only th- that was one thing I didn't know that you were do with the baby, but also that your father was from Montreal. He he lived there for a while when he was a little kid. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's that that was the kind of. It was a part of the immigration route to getting eventually here, but yeah, the, he and his family in the 30s. My dad's old, and his dad was old. Like my grandfather was in World War One. Mm. He would be like 120 years old. I, we did, I was just doing the math with my aunt and uncle. The if other he day. were living in Japan and eating fish yeah, every day, totally. he'd, still, <laughs> he'd be 120 today. Yeah. What? Uh, so they came from where? They immigrated from where? Satu Mare, and it, it's Romania now. It was Hungary when they left. It goes back. It's one of these places that's gone back and forth between a couple different boards but it's it's technically romania but he speaks hungarian okay so hungarian jews who yeah. migrated to montreal what did you had you had you ever been there with him did you had did you know much about the city uh no i didn't know much about it at all he he um oh, he's told me stories about it and we um he was very insistent that i uh read some mordecai Richler before i went i was actually reading one of his books while while i was there which was interesting because it felt like I was reading about my dad. Uh, it was interesting. It was neat. <laughs> now, did you take your dad to Montreal? No. no. Uh, we talked about it, but um, I didn't think he was going to be up for the six meals a day that I had to eat every day, and it was a lot of walking. And Anyway, so no, but I would love to d- go back. I want to go back, and I'd yeah. love to take my folks and my wife and my kid. And yeah. All right. So, so you're, you're My daughter is wearing her Montreal onesie that I got her at the airport on the way back oh, nice. today. So. You uh, okay? So so you went to Montreal. You did bring a wingman because 
it's yeah. tough to do all that eating. So you brought Francis Lamb, who edited your book, uh, yeah. a super upsetting book about sandwiches. So, all right. So it's interesting because it, Montreal as a city uh, has gotten a ton of food press over the last decade or so, for primarily for two restaurants, Joe, Bo- Joe Beef and Opia du Cochon. Sure. Sort of foie gras central. Yeah. Poutine and all that stuff. Uh, there's also a long history of great Jewish, I don't know, you call it deli food there or? Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the deli food probably gets the most press, but there's, I think there's uh, lots of different, there's a full spectrum of, uh, of like Eastern European, Romanian Jewish cuisine there. Yeah. And then there's also the, a lot of current new, new restaurants. So let's start with, let's start with the, the, the smoked beef and all that good stuff. Yeah. Yeah. So what, what was that like and how did it compare to the, the sort of the, the deli food you, you have here in New York City? I had all a whole big list of restaurants, and most of the restaurants were new, and 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 I had a lot of food that I needed to eat while I was there. But I really did still want to go do the touristy old Jewish things. Eating a smoked meat sandwich was just kind of like, yeah, let's just let's take care of that. Let's get let's knock that off the list. And Schwartz's was like kind of on the way to a lot of different places that we were going to, so we went there. Sat down, but it was just a quick like. Let's split a sandwich. Let's get out of here. And it's let's like keep. grabbing a hot dog totally. on the corner on not, the way to somewhere. It was not a. It was not something we were gonna spend a lot of time or energy on. And we went in, and it was like, it was like going to Katz's. Everybody was kind of like, they kind of made fun of us a lot, and, <laughs> b- but like with a happier wink in their eye at all times. Like every everybody was like, it was gruff and like also so charming and delightful. Yeah. And we sat and we we split a sandwich with the guy thought was hilarious and um in the end it was like the most it was delicious it wasn't i, I was expecting all right we're just gonna go to sit down in this place and eat a pastrami sandwich and then and then move on but it was it didn't it it didn't taste like pastrami it, it was smoky but it wasn't i don't know it, in new york i feel like all pastrami this is a, I, i'm gonna i feel like somebody's gonna be really mad at me for saying this but it kind of all the pastrami tastes the same to some degree you know it's like the same spices the same cooking technique there's a little variation, but like if you get a pastrami sandwich at Katz's and you get one at the Second Avenue Deli, it's not. Yeah, you're not. It's not that different. Schwartz's tasted. It tasted like something else. Like it didn't taste like pastrami to me, and it was. Was it good? It was amazing. It was so so good. It was like a gentler, more subtle kind of thing. I, I admittedly, I'm more of a corned beef than a mm, pastrami okay. guy in general, and it was somewhere. It almost tasted like a somewhere in between. But then you'd get these like pops of coriander and pops of it was it was um go there it's wonderful and it was on rye with a little deli mustard correct and i and i wanted to eat it i thought about it the whole trip i kept wanting to go back but, wait, but wait, i could only have so many meals you did wait, you did have one sandwich twice you wrote about. I, I did it was a corned beef sandwich and i did have it twice and where was that that was at hoff kelson which is a which is a new er kind of bakery cafe and the baked goods the bread and the pastries are unbelievable there it's this guy uh jeff who jeff 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 yes jeffrey if you will jeffrey finkelstein who is an accomplished dude he's like worked in a bunch of kitchens in europe and he went to i think he went to the culinary institute maybe i don't know he's an interesting smart talented dude and he makes this sandwich that's he makes this awesome seeded rye bread and puts corned beef on it and some cabbage and there was russian dressing mm. you can read about it in the yeah. thing but <laughs> the uh, but i it was so good that i that i you know, i was like embarrassed about this but i i had i did eat it because i got i was there i had it the first day that i was there 
Francis didn't get there till the second day. So when Francis got there, I was like, oh, you have to come check out this bakery. I was just going to get him to eat the sandwich. And I was just going to watch him eat mm. the sandwich. And I wasn't going to eat the sandwich again because I still because and we can talk about this. But, but there was just so much food that I had to eat while yeah. I was there. So, so I, as, as a, I wasn't as a reporter, it. you were just going to observe him. Eating. Yeah. But then you ended up going in for half again. And then I just and then I had to eat it. It was so good. <laughs> it was one of the best sandwiches I think I've ever had. Did, when, all right. As a sandwich maker yourself, when you taste a sandwich like that, do you get inspired or do you get jealous? Uh, I don't know. I I think it, my my feelings were just that of admiration because I I I wasn't so much inspired because we've done things like that. But at this point, we make such a huge volume of sandwiches that it turns out to like brine things for five days. There's no space for all that, so mm-hmm. it wasn't necessarily inspiration. Like, oh, I should go back to pickling mm-hmm. beef again, because that's just kind of crazy for us anyway. With multiple shops, as far as like jealousy goes, I don't know. It's just it was an awesome sandwich. Like. I was just so happy to get to eat it. All right, so w- when reporting a story like this, uh, a big part of it for a food writer is the logistics. You're because th- you have to hit X number of meals a day. You're there for X number of days. You have one stomach. How did you? Yeah, infra- next time I would rather do <laughs> like next time if if I get to do this again. And everyone, please write in and tell them to let me do this again because I did such a good job. He did. But I th- want to spend like two weeks there. It was like five days, and I had like. 27 restaurants to go to and it was intense so what did you do how did would you walk a lot or what was the plan i did i walked everywhere even though it was stupid cold there but um but it was nice to walk around and to work off some of that food because there wasn't a whole lot else to do because it was so cold but at the end of the day it was just an incredible amount of eating and i and i every time francis and i would get to a restaurant i'd be like all right but seriously we have like we've had three lunches this is the first of two or three dinners Let's just order like a couple things. We'll taste them, but then we'll move on. Like we don't need to go, we don't need to go big here. And then inevitably, the server would come over, and Francis would order like the whole menu. So you're blaming Francis. I am, and 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 he and he'd be like, no, no, no. We'll we'll just we'll just taste. Like we don't have to eat everything. But we're also the kind of people that we both like would clean all of our plates. It was disgusting. <laughs> so you mentioned all right. So. Damas, 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 Damas. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned going, and it's a sort of modern new Syrian restaurant, uh, and you have this one line here. Uh, first of all, I, I feel like I should read a lot of this piece to the, the listener because <laughs> there's some very funny lines in it. Um, but you said, uh, <laughs> and for the record, I ate at Damas directly after the apocalypse at Opied de Cochon. And while I was planning on having just one bite here and a bite there, I ended up eating a full-on second dinner and felt surprisingly great afterwards. Maybe it was a shot. So you talk about doing shots with the waiter. I mean, anyone who goes to Opiate de Cochon, they're 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 usually done. Like that's it. Yeah, they're it down was, for the count. It's aggressive. So what? So so what? Talk about that night. So what did you have at Opiate? They have a whole section of the menu that's just foie gras, and that's foie gras is not really. That's not totally my thing. I wasn't like, oh, we have to go to Opiate de Cochon. Mm-hmm. We have to eat all the foie gras. But, but it turns out, I don't know, that's just what you eat when you're there, I guess. Because even, like, there's a section of on the menu of foie gras dishes, but there's still foie gras in, like, 70% of the rest <laughs> of the menu. They just have other stars. I, I don't know. What was the best thing you ate at Opiate? It was, like, the, the, the pike canel dish, but it wasn't pike. It was, like, a scallop canel mm. in a muscly broth with some kind of this, like, dry sausage that they make there that... We had some of that sausage just on a plate at one point, and then that sausage found its way into a few dishes. Anyway, it was, it was, it was like one of the few not foie gras dishes, and it was, it was super delicious. 
Um, we didn't we didn't get the like whole pig's head, and we didn't get the like. <laughs> apparently, there's like a can full of foie gras that they will dump out onto a bowl in front of you. <laughs> there's some gratuitous stuff there. We, we didn't go like that big, but I, I I think we did the math. We'd each had like half a pound of foie gras by the end of that meal, and I feel horrible about that because I don't fully support <laughs> consumption of foie gras. I felt really weird about it, but you know whatever we. We did what we had to do. <laughs> you took one for the team. Yeah. Um, but then we went to this other restaurant, and then it was like, all right, well, let's just taste an appetizer. And then France. But ordered. I don't understand how, though. You must have been dying after. I know. Yeah, I, I didn't feel great, but then. And then you walked You walked to Damas, I assume. Yes. That one we actually took a cab to because we were running out of time, and it was kind of far away. We Because some of these places were strict about reservations. And it was like the restaurants were all packed, yeah. despite it being the middle of a really intense winter. And we sat down and we watched our server drink shots with the table next to us. And we were like, we want to drink shots with the server. Not Francis, because he doesn't drink. But, I was about to say, yeah. Uh, but we, we had met this other buddy of ours. The server came over and we drank. It was like this like cinnamony, lemony, something, most delicious shot I've ever had kind of shot. And then I was ready to eat dinner again. And it was so delicious that damas was so good yeah you, you, so we have this section in the, in the magazine where you say where i'll take my wife you kind of divided up the article between where i'll take my parents where i'll take my wife and then was there another one i thought the, oh yeah the first place i'll take my newborn there's a funny line say so it, it's cold very cold there you're walking around uh you're talking about nora gray this restaurant um mm-hmm. And you write, walking out of the cold into a restaurant in montreal is like getting into a hot tub with a brandy alexander in hand next to a stereo playing Van Halen on a clear winter night. Parentheses. I'm not saying I've ever done that, but doesn't that sound amazing? <laughs> Have you really never done that? I don't think so, but I would love to do that. I forgot I wrote that, and now just listening to that line, I'm like, yeah, that is awesome. I'm, I rule at writing. What was Nora Gray like? <laughs> Nora Gray was amazing. That was a that was also a second of two dinners. Like I had to tap out at one point. We were like probably two thirds of the way through that meal, and I just was like, I can't. I can't do this anymore. I still had a bite of dessert, but I, I um, it was a lot of food. But Nora Gray was awesome. It was it was the it was. I'm not a fresh pasta guy hmm. in general. I just would rather, like I think that's neat and all, but like just make me the dry pasta because it tastes better. I, I'm fresh, of two, I'm of two minds of that. There's this notion that fresh pasta is inherently better. I think is false. Like, yeah, and it obviously depends on the dish. If you're making linguine vongole, I don't need fresh pasta with my clams, right. but. Sometimes, like the fresh pasta and silky little transparent, you know, raviolis or whatever, sure. are, you know, totally. especially the filled ones are amazing. You know, absolutely. That said, I had basically spaghetti vongole with fresh pasta, and it was like, oh wow, you did the, the greatest pasta I've ever. It was so the pasta was so good. Speaking of tapping out, see this. Uh, this is I did a piece a couple of years ago in 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 Philadelphia uh, with Emil Stanek, one of our editors, where we did a whole walking tour for two days. Uh, again, tried to hit like 23 restaurants yeah. over the course of two days. And throughout the day, we were walking from place to place, also on a cold day. By the end of the day, I felt good. I was like, yeah. you know what? We, we just went to 12 different restaurants, but we kept moving. We're getting exercise. It's brisk out. Went back to the hotel. Took a little like lie down, bath, that sort of stuff. You know, like a bath in a hotel. Sure. Light some candles. Just chill out. Watch Sports Center. <laughs> and then... We made the mistake of going to Zahav, Michael Salmanov's restaurant, that evening. No, yeah. actually, we went to we went to a fancy place first for hors d'oeuvres at the bar, and then we went to Zahav. Yeah. And that is like when all of a sudden I started to get like the meat sweats, 
and he sent out some crazy glazed lamb shoulder and you're just like what did he say couldn't leave well enough alone or whatever it's like you were at a good place but then you had i felt like we i pushed it too much yeah and then the next day i woke up feeling like hell and still had another day of eating to do and that's the kind of push and the next day you're like what am i what is life about having a someone like francis aaron so francis is uh, an editor yeah he's a writer won a ton of james beard awards yeah etc etc having a fellow food writer with you does that help you sort of put things into perspective as a or sort of into context as a writer or is it like oh gosh francis is here that's a lot of pressure well i appreciate you calling me his fellow food writer because that's (laughs) well you did write the story I i i wrote about food uh, but I don't, you know, I don't feel like a food writer per se. No, it was great having him in there. We we talked a lot about, he gave me a lot of advice and we talked a lot about like, he gave me a lot of advice about how, about kind of writing about the, and I, and I probably did a horrible job of actually taking said advice, but about kind of writing about how the city felt about, you know, atmosphere, maybe more, not more than the specific dishes, but, you know, just trying to give people a feel for things and he's really good at that and i you know i gave it a shot yeah. the only thing that sucked is he just made me eat more than i than i'm capable of it's kind of like going know. it's kind of like you know just like cruising around with yoda and he just sort of gives you advice sure <laughs> <laughs> all right so you start the piece uh on a dark and windy night last december in the middle of a brutally cold snowstorm in montreal where everybody was speaking french and acting like it was no big deal i ate one of the greatest bowls of soup i have had in years and then at the end of the piece, you get to this bowl of soup at Agricole. Yeah, it was a tricky thing. It was the la- it was the last night. Francis left. He he got there the second day. He left the day before I did. But in the meantime, my uh, best buddy in the world, Matt, came up. He's the guy that designs and builds all the restaurants in New York. And all, he, all of the restaurants, pretty much all of them. Name a restaurant. He probably <laughs> designed it and they built it. Uh, so he came up the last couple nights. So he was the one. He was with us at Damas, but he. Um, so our the my last night in Montreal, he and I were walking around, and we agreed. I had two lunches that day, but then I had two dinner reservations. But I Francis was gone, and I feel like I was like, okay, let's take it easy. I don't yeah. have to order every single thing in in Montreal. And so Matt and I were walking around, and I I canceled our the second dinner reservation, but I kept the one at Agricole. Because that sounded interesting and fun. So, but but again, it, I wasn't even remotely hungry. We walked for like an hour and a half, and I still wasn't hungry. But we got there and had a drink. And well, explain the restaurant. So, what type of restaurant? Who owns it? That sort of stuff. It's a it's so yeah. So it's a Haitian restaurant, and the, uh, I I believe the chef owner is Haitian. It, it sounds like it's a partnership involving some of the guys from Arcade Fire. I want to say that's what I so so I've read. It's you know it's pretty cool, um, but. At the end of the day, it is, uh, it seems a pretty legit and awesome Haitian restaurant. But it's it is cool. It is definitely like cool. Like the yeah. people in there were cool, and uh, the space is really neat. It's this like weird little house with like a second floor kind of balcony thing where people are sitting, and it is like it's warm and the music was great, and it was like a really intense snowstorm outside, and we walked into this place, and it was just like this like warm caribbean wonderful party going on in there um which just felt so incredibly right you know like a hot tub and a <laughs> van halen and <laughs> a brandy alexander uh anyway so so we sat down i had a drink um the bartenders were great the service across the board in montreal was wonder everybody was just like so 
after the initial hiccup, every everywhere we went, they would always try to speak French to me, and then I would explain that I didn't understand it, and then they were super sweet, and we spoke in English. And anyway, so they told us about the specials, and there were some fried plantains, and there was some this and some that, and a bowl of soup for two people. And after a week of eating all of the food in Montreal, I was I was th- that was the last thing that I would even have considered eating. But Matt, of course, was like, "We will have the soup for two. and I was like. Dude, come on. <laughs> and out comes this enormous bowl of soup and it was so delicious and so perfect and so like So what was it? It was a pureed squash soup, but it was like a You want, you want me to read it? I'm, I'm going to read it. I'm okay, going to sure. I'm going to read you <laughs> being you. Uh one of the specials was quote a celebratory Haitian soup for two end quote and even though a giant bowl of soup was figuratively the last thing I wanted to see, of course my friend insisted we try it parentheses see what i did there we're back at the soup because this is like a little writer's trope where you come back it's to like the a movie it's yeah. like a movie out came a giant steaming bowl of soup jumu yeah jumu a puree of squash cooked in beef stock with chunks of potatoes and parsnips small meat-filled dumplings that look like ravioli and a giant marrow bone sticking out like a lighthouse in a blizzard of coriander seeds and cilantro leaves I'm super good at writing, right? <laughs> you are good at writing. You should keep it up. <laughs> it was it was served with two of my favorite things in the known universe: a lime for squeezing and grilled crusty bread for dipping in the broth. Oh, I love grilled crusty bread. I do too. And I just always want a lime to squeeze on everything. Like it, that should just come with every dish. Is there anything worse when you go to the store or you're at like some random bar and they give you the dried out lime wedge and you're trying to squeeze it in your drink and like nothing comes out? That is a bummer. You're just like really. It's nobody's fault. But yes, that's a bummer. That's just like, uh, the bigger bummer is that it, I, I do at number seven. I I serve. I put a lime or a lemon wedge next to like most food there because I think it's so fun. And nobody ever uses it. They just then I throw them away. And I'm like, don't you guys like that? Don't you fun? know? Don't you just want to squeeze something on there? Let's say all right. Let's say you do this story again for us, but you pick a different city. Yeah. How will you do it differently, or how will you do it the same? I would do my best to get Francis to go with me again, <laughs> just because <laughs> that's fun. You know, more time is obviously better, but also more time costs more. So I don't know. Yeah, it, it's so if you had a couple extra it's days, it's tough you could, to you fit could, that you, much food in. You <laughs> could spread it out over a few. It's more like days. We, we've been joking about it. It really is tough to fit all that food in. And I, you know, I've wanted to do a good job, yeah. and I felt a lot of pressure to do a good job. So I really wanted to do my work and like eat all of the food. But it is so much food. Although again, Montreal is such a specific place too, where I had certain things that I did really want to try that didn't necessarily need to go into the article anyway. So I admittedly probably put more food into mm. this trip than I than I needed to <laughs> in some ways. Now you're coming clean, <laughs> All, but also, I mean, let's let's be clear: like you went to what is probably the heaviest eating city in North America, between the yeah. smoked beef and the foie gras and everything else. Like this is not; it's not like you're doing lean Mediterranean cuisine. That's yet. true. That's true. They're think, not messing around. I think the next city we dispatch you to can be should be like in Minnesota. <laughs> no, we should go heavier. No, we're going someplace super, <laughs> super lean and clean. All right, let's, let's talk about it. That sounds right. fun. Tower Core, thank you so much. Thanks for having me, and thanks for letting me write this piece. It was so fun. Claire, let me just start off by saying I have never made an edible gift before. I don't even know if I've received an edible gift before, but I like the notion of an edible gift. You never got like peppermint bark as a from William Sonoma as a gift. Well, I mean, not homemade not edible. Homemade. Okay, yeah, fair enough. And, and yeah, <laughs> it's amazing, but that pe- that peppermint bark is quite good. So, are you gonna do something this year? 
Um, I, I don't know if I will do something, but I will gladly receive something from you okay. if you choose to <laughs> okay. make something for me. Message received. It's, it's interesting because when people do the homemade thing, it is like, oh, that's actually thoughtful. It's, right. it, it's so cliche, but it right. is the thought that counts. Right. I think it's just good strategy because you don't always know how many holiday parties you're going to go to or be invited to. And when, you know, someone pops over, you like there's a lot of planning that you can't do around the holidays. And so it's actually, I think, easier and good strategy to just make like a big batch of some kind of edible gift. And then anytime you run out to a holiday party oh. or you have like, you know, you're like, oh, I need a gift for this person. You just kind of grab something off your shelf and you're like, so oh, here's this beautiful thing I made for you. So when you're making a batch of homemade so-and-sos, you're not necessarily doing it with this particular person in mind as much as like you've got your little elf factory going and right. you're going to make a right. I'm like, a I number need, of them. Right. I'm like, I need gifts for these five people, but I'm going to make five extra for the people I don't know when the, who just yeah. show up or something. I, I will say this. Uh, you know, you always appreciate it when someone walks through the door with something in their hand. So when you are thinking about making an edible gift, uh, first of all, yeah, when when do you start baking or cooking or what's your what's your sort of your schedule? Yeah, so I feel behind right now because I haven't started doing anything for the holidays. I have started as early as October. That was the year I made the fruit cakes, which we actually talked about on a previous podcast. That was like a months long project. Okay, but that, I, those that a that was insane. B that's like they're supposed to sort of soak in the liquor. Anytime, anytime a cake has to age, you might want to think twice about eating that cake. Uh, that cake impressed everyone that tried it because mostly because people's expectations were super low. So we did a piece this uh, before. All right, I know we're going on a tangent here, but the piece was about how fruitcake is kind of always the butt of jokes, and it's not like something you, no one eats it. You get it, you give it to someone else, and you regift, regift. Right. Why was this fruitcake particularly tasty? Because it was real fruitcake, not like the stuff you buy. Well, I've never bought it, but like it comes in a tin yeah. that like really does weigh twelve pounds. I mean, these weighed quite a bit, but it's essentially just a lot of fruit bound together by like a molassesy cake that you soak in brandy like for weeks and like keep feeding it more brandy and so but then you cover it with jam and marzipan like it's delicious it's just a bunch of dried fruit um and you eat it with cheese you can eat it like as a like on your cheese plate you can eat it for dessert it was really tasty and oh. i had a recipe from a woman whose grandmother was like a mrs patmore from downtown abbey like a mm -hmm. cook in like a big house and that was the recipe they their family passed down. It was good. It was great. All right. If there was a uh, TV simulcast going on right now, you could see me looking skeptically <laughs> at you. <Right>. You're <laughs> the emoji <laughs> with the raised eyebrow. Yeah, I'm like, hmm, with the with that with the little hand on the chin. <laughs> if I ever make them again, I'll yeah. save some for you. Okay, so in this instance, uh, you made how many did you make? Of the fruitcakes? Yeah, I made three nine-inch fruitcakes. They were huge. A lot of gift giving is the packaging. Right. So, like, what did you do with those, for instance? Well, those I covered in a layer of jam, then marzipan, then royal icing, and then I painted them with luster dust. I really lost my oh, mind wow. on this project. Um, but then I kind of cut them into smaller pieces and gifted them out because no one is going to – it would take you months to eat, like, a nice But how do, you, how do you gift out smaller pieces of a fruitcake? The presentation was a little lacking. I gave a whole one to someone, and that was – very beautiful and that made you know yeah, and you it know really, what it made so much they still have it <laughs> <laughs> i actually got a text three months later that they had just eaten the last piece but i think for edible gifts that's not a great example because i do think packaging is 
one of the most important things because it, it matters how you present it, but also it needs to be transportable and not get like mushed in the process and kind of ruined. So I always think about that with edible gifts. That's a good point. Form, form and function. Yeah, it's they're equally important. Actually. All right, so let, let's talk about some specific ones for this holiday season. Mm-hmm. In the December issue of Bon Appetit, uh, you have a recipe. We call it awesome sauce, also known as homemade caramel. Yes. I think you, it's hard to beat this as an edible gift because it checks all the boxes. You can make a lot of it at once. You can package it individually. So these, in this case, we recommend you put it into like little eight ounce jars, um, and it will keep for a very, very long time. So I could make this sauce, you know, the first week of December and give it out all throughout the holidays for Christmas. Okay, well, let's talk about. It. So this is a caramel sauce that you want to pour, put on ice cream, that sort of stuff. Yeah, serve it with apple pie. Um, ice cream is great. You can put it on crepes. Um, you know, if you like are feeling fancy, you can put on your morning pancakes. Mm. You might want to heat it up in the microwave first. Definitely. So you have to heat it up. It, it solidifies when it's cold. So definitely keep it refrigerated, but it will stay in your fridge for you know a couple months. months. Um, okay, so for instance, what will you, like when you say jars, what kind of jars do you like to use? And then do you decorate the jars somehow? Or I really like, I mean, I have a lot of mason jars at home that have the sort of the removable like screw cap. Yep. Um, those work really well. The Weck jars, which I think is a German company, um, make for really beautiful packaging. They're a little simpler. They have like a glass top. Okay. Although now they come in, a, they have a wooden top, which is really pretty. All right. I have some issues. All right. Well, first of all, the, okay. So for the, for the mason jars, what we all grew up with, the little screw on yeah, top. Yeah, the, the ball the, jars. The, the ball jars, the two piece tops. They have the flat part and mm-hmm. the screw. And then you'll use like, are the small ones like six ounces or so or eight? I think maybe? they come in four and then eight. Eight. Yeah. Uh, so you choose one of those, like yeah. it's probably the eight ounce. Maybe the eight ounce is nice. Yeah. It's a really manageable size, but it feels like you know a good, generous amount. And then I just put a bow on it, put a little piece of like red ribbon or something, um, and that's it. So I, I also have little stickers that you can put on top where you label it, which Ooh, is nice. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Do you have good handwriting? When I try. When you try. Yeah. My issue with the Weck jars and Weck jars became very like cool among the hipster Brooklyn artisanal set uh, uh-huh. in the last five years or so. Uh, they've got like so it's the glass jar and it's a little bit sort of slanted side i don't know what a better word for you know the kind of tapers at the bottom a mm-hmm. little bit and they have the glass top and they have those little sort of like uh little clips little metal clips and i always find it very unpleasant when the the metal grinds against the glass and i'm like there's got to be a better way to put a top on a jar <laughs> well now they have these wooden tops that have more of like a rubber stopper oh. kind of on the bottom so you don't need clips they kind of just seal on their own see i like that but they, those are very pretty they also have my wife has bought some for our house we had a bunch of them and i found them all annoying they also have the white plastic tops that go on. Oh, but, I haven't seen those. But then that totally like defeats the purpose. Now you're like, oh, now it just looks like any old other piece of like sort of like Tupperware type of thing you got in your fridge, and it's not even cool anymore. Right. But it is functional. So that's right. why I that's I think ball jars are sort of unimpeachable on that front. Like they look good, mm-hmm. they work. Yeah, I reuse all of them. Um, so I have a ton of them at home. Um, I I've used them for canning. I mean, that's they're designed for canning. Um, but if like that piece on top wears out like the rubber wears off you can just buy replaceable lids so they yeah. really last forever um and so i often have like a mix of any number of jars at home um so i like i'm constantly reusing them and then when someone gives you one or you finish a jar of jam that comes in one save it wash it and keep it for the next time you have to give gifts they do last forever um all right so let's talk about this caramel sauce because you said you can make a big batch making a big batch of bubbling hot <laughs> like scalding sugar syrup kind of scares me yeah sugar burns are bad 
Yeah. So, so like, what, tips how, to avoid. So how are you doing this, and how are you ba- doing big batch versions of well, this? this? So this caramel is a wet caramel as opposed to a dry caramel. So that's no, a I, little bit no idea what you're talking about. Basically, it means when you melt the sugar, you're dissolving it in water first rather than just melting the sugar on its own oh, okay. in a pot. So okay. that takes a little more technique, and it takes longer, and it's a little harder to get a more even product. You can easily scale that up because you're dissolving it in water first. Um, I just recommend using a heavy-bottomed pot. So if I'm doing a big batch of caramel, I'll do it in my Dutch oven because that's... A, a very heavy pot. So the problem with caramel is sometimes in a thin pot, you get hot spots that Mm -hmm. can burn. So just to make sure you have even heat everywhere, use a Dutch oven. uh, Although I would say to that point, would you recommend a round Dutch oven as opposed to one of the oval Dutch ovens? Yes. And a Dutch oven, preferably one that doesn't have, where it's enameled, so you have a surface that's not dark. So you can see how dark the caramel is getting. Like oh. a Le Creuset has like a sort of a cream colored interior. Yeah. So that's better. So you can see how dark you're taking the caramel. Whereas the Staub, uh, that has like the black sort of like more like sort of cast irony yeah. interior. So yeah. you would not. Oh, that's interesting. So you want to see it get brown. Yeah. It's, it's, careful. it's important to be able to see how dark you're taking it. And I like to take caramel very dark. So with the caramel sauce, you're cooking it, but then you're stopping the cooking by adding cold butter and cream. Mm. So, well, in this case, I think it would say room temperature. Um, Question. Yeah. When you add, quote unquote, room temperature or cold butter and cream, do you risk like the giant splattering and like volcanic sort yeah. of eruption? <laughs> it does splatter a lot. So when you add the butter, I mean, you just have to add, use something with high sides Yeah. Um, and kind of keep your face tilted back. <laughs> um, but, you know, if you add it one piece at a time, I wouldn't recommend dumping all the butter in. In the recipe, we break it down into every step. So it's saying, you know, add the butter, add the butter a piece at a time, keep stirring. And that'll stop the cooking, um, but it won't like sputter like crazy. Um, and so I like to take the caramel until I see like wisps of smoke rising from the surface. And you can smell also that it's become really, really kind of toasty. And like, I, it just is, I think it makes a better caramel because you're tempering the sweetness with these sort of bitter caramel notes. You know, caramel's made of 100% sugar, basically. So just to make the flavor a little more complex, take it pretty dark. What about salt? There's a lot of salt. So this is a salted caramel sauce. I think we add a teaspoon of kosher salt per cup of sugar. Um, you can use Malden. You can use fancy sea salt if you have it. Kosher salt is fine. Actually, kosher is a little bit better because it dissolves more easily. Okay. So we found that Morton's, which is a coarser salt, doesn't dissolve as quickly as something like um, Diamond, which is a little finer. Morton's kosher as opposed to Morton's iodized. Morton's kosher as opposed to Diamond kosher. Yes. But no, but I'm saying we oh, don't more, use it. Yeah, yes. we don't, we, yeah. yeah no we iodized. don't even mess Sorry. with that iodized. I haven't touched iodized salt in probably 10 years. <laughs> I believe you. Okay, so, um, all right, so you got this delicious... Uh, caramel sauce, you let it cool mm-hmm. a fair amount before you pour it into the jars, I imagine. Yeah, you can stir it over an ice bath if you have to speed that up or just kind of leave it out on your counter and stir it occasionally. Um, but at that point, it's extremely stable. So while it's still a little warm, pour it into the jars, seal them, and just stick them in the fridge, and they can stay there for, like, months and months. Mm, I like that. Okay, you also have a recipe uh, from our November 2015 issue on Buckwheat, or I see a December. Yeah, well, this is whatever. Anyways, because uh, when it's in the December magazine, it gets published online, online. in November. And it gets very confusing. <laughs> right. It's not easy being in publishing. Uh, pancake mix. Yeah, actually, this is a Chris Morocco recipe. Um, but he developed this recipe sort of like a sort of whole grainy pancake. Um, and I love the photo that 
we shot in the magazine that was just you see so it has rye flour and buckwheat flour and you see all the layers of all the different dry ingredients packed into a jar oh yeah yeah. um so i think it's a really nice way to present the gift and also during the holidays like people are hosting family and they're having to plan not only dinners but wait breakfasts wait wait also. wait 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 rewind this so you would you would present it as a gift where you see these like layers like a cross-section of like the earth sort of thing with like yeah so the, the oh, recipe's broken so cool. out into just the dry mix and uh-huh. then you have assembly where you like add the eggs and buttermilk so i've actually last year i gave this recipe i i took all the dry ingredients and like layered them into a jar again like a ball jar mason yeah, jar, ball jar yeah, yeah. yeah something with a wider top uh-huh. um just so you can it's you know you don't have to like use a funnel to get the ingredients yep. in there um and then i kind of like shook the jar a little bit to level out each layer so that uh-huh. it made nice little like so cool yeah um and then i put a bow on it and i gave it with like a fancy jar or a fancy bottle of um like local maple syrup Mm. to a pancake lover actually my boyfriend's dad i was like i yeah i was like struggling with gifts and he was like my dad loves pancakes so this was the perfect gift um and then he would make them for himself and then you just do you give a little recipe card with it about combined with four eggs yada yada i wrote like out sort of method like you know whisk in a bowl with blah 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 yeah um blah 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 we use that all the time (laughs) uh let me say a question like I love the notion these days of non-white flour pancakes. I like a little something that's a little crunchier or a little bit uh, something more going on. Uh, Could you add something else to this mix that gives you a little texture or crunch or something? Any little seeds or I I have no idea. I like I don't know how to I never made homemade pancakes before. Really. I don't think. You Maybe. Never made, you never made homemade pancakes? I guess I have, but never ones like this where you have like, you know, all the little things going on. Okay. Interesting. I don't know. Do you do this sort of thing? Uh, well, I'm not I don't really like pancakes that much. Oh. And I'm actually a terrible pancake flipper. That's like my worst what? kitchen skill. I'm really bad at flipping pancakes. Because you think you're worried it's gonna splatter when you flip it over? I don't know. I blame being left handed. I I don't know. Mm. I'm not good at it and Lefty. I don't really like pancakes. But so this recipe already has, you can't take out all the white flour with pancakes because they'll just become really, really like mm-hmm. dense um, and kind of unpleasant. Like I've had 100% buckwheat pancakes and they're terrible no, no, actually. Yeah. Like they're dry. Um, so this recipe has a third, swaps in a third of the flour for either like whole wheat or rye flour and then buckwheat flour. Um, but I think you could add, I mean, Chris again did a recipe in Healthyish that had a whole bunch of like cooked whole grains in it, oh. and that created such amazing like chewy texture in all of them. So if you have cooked wheat berries or rye berries or even like quinoa, yeah, yeah. that oh, adds like really cool. fun texture. So you can you can give this mix, and you can say, hey, if you want to healthyize it yeah. even more, <laughs> right. uh, or if you know the re- the recipient, you can, and then you know what they like, you can kind of dress it up a little bit and yeah. add other mix-ins. Yeah, I think if you can find that other, uh, the recipe that Claire was, can we just call you Lefty from now on? Sure. That Lefty was yeah. referring to. Uh, better than Half Sour. Half Sour. That's your <laughs> other nickname? Brad, <laughs> Brad nicknamed me. <laughs> oh, God. Uh, but at, on our Healthiest website at behealthiest, behealthiest.com, uh, for, I mean, if you just search for bre- pancake recipes, th- those will show up. This one, this buckwheat rye pancake, and the other one that Chris developed. Well, Chris is like Mr. Pancake. I know. Who knew? Yeah, really. So anyways, yeah, I want, I, want, I want healthier pancakes in my life, not because I want healthy, pa- not because I want healthy pancakes in my life, but because I find white flour pancakes boring. All right. Well, like, I, I eat one of them and I'm like, okay, that was yeah. good. I don't need a whole stack of them. Listen, I think homemade pancakes where they get super crispy and crunchy on the outside and a little bit lacy, mm-hmm. those are good. I find your average diner pancake where they're all just one color and they kind of tapered on the edges and there's no crispy. Like those are just like, 
yeah. diminishing returns. You Boring. take two bites and you're like, all right, I got it. Do you know what I think the diner move is? I don't ever want to eat an entire plate of pancakes, but no. sometimes I want like a quarter of a pancake. So you just get like a little short stack to share. Or I get the silver dollar pancakes, like the little, oftentimes the littler ones, you want more surface to interior ratio, you know, or mm-hmm. whatever, edge, like, yeah, crispier. I just want the little guys. Yeah. Uh, and then waffles, I don't like the big divots on the waffles. I think that's BS. Um, I like a basic sort of homemade, Emma's over here <laughs> yelling at me in the production booth, like, this is not about edible gifts. You could make waffle mix. That would also be nice. Sure. Like a really good waffle mix. But then it's like, do you have to give that with a waffle iron? I don't think a lot of people have waffle uh. irons at home. But they should have waffle irons. You know what are fun? I don't have one. Do you yeah, have but one? You should get one because you don't have to flip them. But what am I going to I live oh, alone. You know, I make you, waffles for one. You know what? I was, I was in D.C. last weekend visiting friends, and they have one of those waffle irons that's kind of bulbous that you turn over halfway through when the light goes on, you know? Uh-huh. So it's like it rotates. Like at a hotel breakfast yeah, bar? Yeah, lobby, lobby pancakes. Uh-huh. As, uh, when we had Mark Marin on the podcast, he calls them lo- lobby, <laughs> lobby waffles. I think also it's like with pancakes and waffles just you've used buttermilk i think that's the okay, way you yeah. get them to taste like anything well, but that's, exactly. there's also like really beautiful artisanal buttermilk it can also give that yeah. as a gift because that's something well, that's you nice. know, a lot of people don't have no nope. so give it with the mix and you can include the recipe so that if they want to make it again for themselves if they really liked it then they can do that too so gift that Ooh, keeps that's on a good giving. one these are, these are thoughtful gifts like this is better <laughs> than just Star Wars Battlefront 2. <laughs> right. Or the, or the Bodega bottle of Chardonnay. Yeah. Oh, God. No, actually, the Bodega doesn't sell the Chardonnay. Bodega sells the flowers, the flowers. next Some to the Bodega liquor store. Some wine, but then it's really like, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can't show up with that. No. No. <laughs> but you know what you can show up with, Claire? You can show up with salted, seedy, chocolate bark. I don't remember when this was from, but last year we had a recipe that's a very similar idea um, in French, they're called mandiant. Little, they're like little chocolate coins that are decorated oh, yeah. with different, like dried fruits and nuts and seeds. So it's the same idea. Um, which one? You, which recipe do you want to do first? Oh well, it's both? basically the same. All right. Well, all right. Let's talk freeform chocolate candies, yeah. which you, you can find on bonappetit.com from December 2016. So yeah, so they're like little sort of like silver dollar size coins, right? Mm-hmm, right, and they're freeform, so you don't need molds and. Also, this recipe doesn't tell you to temper chocolate because I've never in my life successfully tempered chocolate. How can you not? What? Why? What's so hard? I don't know. It's like depends on like the temperature of the air and the humidity, and I you have to have a candy thermometer. Like oh. it's it's just not. It's I think for the home cook, it's more trouble than it's worth. And professional cooks use like machines that do it for them. I just assume that you walk around with a candy thermometer in your jacket pocket. <laughs> I'm not there yet. Uh, so yeah, so, so talk to it. So this calls for six ounces semi-sweet or bittersweet chocolate yeah, melted slightly. Slightly, <laughs> melted, slightly cooled, and that is the that's the that, those are all the recipes. <laughs> right. all, all, that's all the ingredients. Right. Well, so the toppings are like as you choose. Um, you can use candied ginger, anything you want to eat with chocolate. I don't love chocolate and fruit together, mm-hmm. so I'm not gonna like put candied orange peel. But if you love that combo, you can use that. But any I, kind of nuts or seeds. I do like chocolate. I mean, I do like candied ginger. Yeah, it's, that's nice. and it's good with chocolate. Um, so. You can also use any chocolate that any chocolate that you like eating out of hand. I would use for this recipe. So pick your favorite ch- bar of chocolate and you know cho- chop it up and melt it in the microwave or in a double boiler um, and start there. So you just as long as you like the taste of the chocolate, that's what I would use. Okay. So question. So mm-hmm. you're gonna go out and buy a one of those you know decent sized bars of chocolate. Mm-hmm. What is your preferred candy like this? What is your preferred cacao percentage? <laughs> <laughs> cacao. Um, That's how you pronounce it, right? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Um, 
I don't like chocolate that's super dark. Mm -hmm. So I go between like 64 and 72, I think is nice. It's a good sweet spot. You could use milk chocolate if you want. Get it, sweet spot. (laughs) Get it. Milk chocolate doesn't have as like firm a set. So you could do milk chocolate for the kids. Yeah. And then dark chocolate for the kids. You could do a mix. You literally could mix the two kinds if one's a little sweet and one's a little dark. Um, Or if you have just like odds and ends of chocolate bars at home, you can mix them together. And then you really just kind of doll up the sort of slightly cooled melted chocolate onto like a parchment lined baking sheet. Um, wait, wait, question. First of all, when you're when you're melting the chocolate, do you do the double boiler thing where you put a bowl over boiling water or can you just do it in a pan over low heat? I recommend double boiler because chocolate burns really, really easily. Okay, so you and got so a bowl of boiling water. You have a pot of boiling water, yeah. set a metal bowl, chop up the chocolate, put yeah. it in there, Simmer, stir I mean, it. I wouldn't, I mean, the water should be kind of just barely bubbling. And then I, I use a glass bowl because it kind of, I mm. feel like I can see what's going yeah. on a little better. Um, and then the water should not be touching the bottom of the bowl. Okay. That's the important thing. So the steam that's collecting in the pot is what's sort of gently like heating up the chocolate and melting it. And don't just put the whole bar in there. Chop up the bar first, right? Yes. 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 I mean, you could. I mean, it would take a while. <laughs> um, so yeah, chop it up and then let it go and then take it off the heat and start occasionally and let it cool off a little bit. And then it's really, these are free forms. So it's really, you can make any shape you want. We went with little coins. Um, and I just use the back of a spoon to kind of, I dollop the chocolate onto parchment and then on a flat surface, that's important. Uh, and then just use the back of the spoon to kind of spread it out into a little, maybe one and a half inch diameter circle. And then before the chocolate hardens, just put whatever toppings you like. So sesame seeds mm. um, are nice. Candied ginger we talked about. We could, I mean, if you want to be really fancy about it, you can use like little candied rose petals or um, other edible flowers. Little... Uh Sea salt, perhaps? Salt is great, yeah. You also have puffed quinoa, or rice, oh, or puffed I rice. I don't even remember all the things that we said to put on that on top. Roasted pumpkin seeds, I love those. Yeah, Pepitas. seeds are good, yep. Bee pollen, I don't know if I'm going to be doing that. <laughs> it looks good, though. Maybe, if you say so. Demerara sugar, that's like the cool sort of yeah. goldenish sugar. Yeah, and if you're using dark chocolate, a little extra sweetness is nice. Uh, pecan halves, pecan halves, <laughs> pecan halves. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love nuts and chocolate are a great combos. So you can do um, Marcona almonds are kind of fancy. Ooh, nice. Yeah, and usually pretty salty. Would you chop up those Marcona almonds? Those are, those are like the cool, like oily, salty ones. Yeah, I think I'd leave them whole. Leave them whole. Yeah. All right. It just doesn't look better. So, all right, let's say you've made these nice little chocolate coins decorated with a variety of interesting toppings. Um, then what do you do with them? So, because you haven't tempered the chocolate, you have to keep them chilled because they will easily melt again. So don't put them like on your heater like while you're like turning around putting your shoes on or something if you're about to bring them to a party. Chill them and then once they're hardened, you can peel off the parchment paper and then pack them into like little cellophane bags and put a little bow on top. I usually make one trip to the container store during the holidays because they have there it's a really great place for all like the packaging stuff that you mm. need. So they have all different size bags. You can buy different like colors of ribbon and string and um like little tags or you can i love the tags yeah i think you have to leave a tag because at a holiday party like things get thrown on the couch or something and you leave and no one knows who brought them this beautiful bag of candies happens all the time you might have enjoyed a glass of prosecco too much at your holiday party you wake up the next morning you're like oh look all this cool stuff we got you're like i have no idea who gave that to us well if you're bringing the gift you want credit for having made the homemade gift. And then you know you have to go send an email to thank that person for bringing something, but you can't, you're not sure if they brought the chocolates or not. You're like, oh my God, thank you so much for your gift. <laughs> right. And you feel like such a loser. Right. Just avoid all those awkward holiday moments. All right. But with these chocolates, though, the melting factor, I'd be, I'd be 
hesitant to just pile up a bunch of chocolates in a bag together because I worry that they would just get all mushed and melted together. You yeah, know? I mean, that's why you should keep them chilled. So uh-huh. if you bring them to someone's house, you again, don't put them on the heater. <laughs> just yeah. like just go into, stick them in the fridge. Just go into their fridge. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But they'll be fine. Um, and, you know, you can you can hold them in the bag in your fridge and just kind of pull pull bags out as you need. Um, you can also pack them into little boxes if you and make them like really, that might be really fancy. kind of layers with a little layer of some sort of fancy paper in between. Mm-hmm. I like that. All right. Is there anything you haven't done as an edible gift that you aspire to, Claire? Maybe this year for <clears throat> a certain editor in chief. Um, She's like, no, <laughs> no. I, can I be honest? Yeah, I'm. I'm kind of out of ideas this year. Really? Yeah. So our, our greatest hits then. Let's. What are you going to go back to? What's your, what's what's the one Claire Saffitz gift that always kills? There are these little slice and bake cookies that I bring with me all everywhere, like all the holiday parties, and they're really really good. But it's a recipe by Dory Greenspan, whom I have the privilege of interviewing this Friday. And oh, I'm nice. Very excited and a little nervous. Dory so is I'm like talk to her. About she them. is the cookie queen. I'm like a weird fangirl. Yeah. So you're not the only one. I know. And what? So which which slice and bake cookies are these by her? So they're they're called World Peace cookies. They are. It's a very well known recipe. You can find it on like a million blogs just by googling. Um, and they're really simple. It's like a a sort of sable cookie, just cocoa butter. You know flour. what? You know what? The average person, including me, doesn't know what the av- basic sable cookie means. You know what a sable cookie is. Let's say I don't know. Okay. <laughs> a sable cookie is basically a butter cookie that doesn't have, there's no baking soda or powder, so it's not like a, it's not puffy, it's not cakey, it has a very sandy texture. Sable oh, yes. just means sandy. I like that. So it doesn't get all, like, as it cook bakes, it doesn't puff up. It doesn't and, puff. Yeah. Right, right. Hers is a chocolate version, it has chopped chocolate in it, and you just roll the dough into logs and... Um, it's a, another good tip is you can freeze the logs and then just pull them out of your freezer and so you'll have and like that's them. pretty cool. It's like it's like your ammunition in the yeah. you have logs of frozen chocolate roll things yeah. in the freezer. You pull one out, yeah. defrost it, slice it. You're only ten minutes away from having cookies to either serve or bring somewhere. They're really really good. I think it's the best cookie recipe we've ever made. Wow, they're so good. That's why I make them every year. Uh, all right, guys. So you can Google that World Peace Cookies by Dory Greenspan, or you can go on to bonapetite.com for our buckwheat rye pancakes and our freeform chocolate candies and our caramel sauce in the December 2017 issue of Bon Appetit. Yeah. If a senior food editor was going to give an editor-in-chief an edible gift, what would that editor-in-chief want? I like the notion of the caramel sauce. <laughs> I know my kid would enjoy putting that on ice cream. Uh-huh. I probably I would probably enjoy putting on ice cream too. Although those cookies sound pretty good. Okay. You know, Noted. it's the holidays. Why not have both? <laughs> All right. When in doubt. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Claire. All right. Thanks. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and produced and edited by Emma Wartsman. Our theme music is by Valerie and the Gradies with additional music by Nathaniel Wartsman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.